Ladies and gentlemen, brethren all, welcome to the Working Tools Podcast, a casual conversation around Freemasonry. First, it's important to note that our opinions and thoughts are our own and do not reflect those of our Grand Lodges or respective craft or concordant bodies. Uh, please remember to connect with us and ask questions either here on the live tube YouTube chat uh, in the chat room or on Facebook and also our Discord server. Uh, I am one of your hosts, David Colbeth from Bonnie Lake, Washington, uh, a past master of King Solomon Lodge in Auburn, Washington, 32nd degree Freemason, um, um, Scottish Rite Mason out of the Valley of Tacoma, and uh, several other things. Uh, today, unfortunately, we're not able to be joined by our other co-hosts, uh, Stephen Chung. He is enjoying uh, Vacation Day, enjoying Canada Day, and uh, uh, so uh, we'll celebrate that. And Connor, our other co-host, is uh, on a family emergency, so keep him in your thoughts and prayers. Uh, but we have a new and ongoing co-host with Matt Apple. So, Matt, if you could introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Matt Apple. I'm uh, currently serving as the District Deputy in District 2 of the Grand Lodge of Washington, and uh, I'm involved with Scottish Rite, like David, and I'm just happy to be here today, and we're for my all of second show now. The... Uh, and I'll pass it on to most worshipful brother, Jim Mendoza, who's next up in line there. Hey, guys. Hope everyone can hear me. Everyone, can everyone hear me? Absolutely. Great. Hey, guys, this is Jim Mendoza. Uh, as you know, uh, past Grandmaster Washington, currently involved uh, heavily with Scottish Rite, uh, the personal representative in, uh, in Tacoma, trying, trying, to, trying, hard, trying real hard to be a has-been, failing miserably. Uh, that's okay. Uh, but um, we're really pleased to have everyone today because this is kind of a different take on on what we normally talk about on the podcast. We're going to be talking about uh, kind of a lighter topic, uh, and that is basically conne the connection of Freemasonry and baseball. And who better to help us out with that than uh, the current director of uh, current manager of on-site learning at the at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown? Uh, um, and I'm going to have him, I'm going to have him tell you more, a little bit more about himself, and that's Nathan Tweedy. Nathan. Oh, thank you so much, Jim. Uh, yeah, so my name is Nathan Tweedy. I am the manager of on-site learning at the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum in Cooperstown. Actually coming to you right from my office in Cooperstown. So uh, show's coming from a Hall of Fame. So I, I guess we could be the first and only Hall of Fame uh, podcast. How's that sound? I like that a lot. So um, Nathan and I met totally by chance uh, last summer. Uh, I was walking, uh, 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 my lodge has, as a gift, um, sent me to, sent me to New York and I kind of modified that gifts cause I always wanted to go to Cooperstown. So it was, uh, I think a Monday or Tuesday night, Laura and I had dinner at one of the places in Cooperstown and we were just walking along and Nathan, and then someone taps me on the shoulder, Nathan, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> I should take a step back and just say that I am, uh, I'm the current lodge historian for Otsego Lodge, which is the only lodge, Otsego Lodge number 138, the only lodge in Cooperstown, New York. And uh, for those baseball purists out there, our lodge is actually older than baseball. So there you go. <laughs> uh, lodge was uh, officially, uh, our officers were installed in 1795, and our first meeting was in 1796. Uh, so as far as I know, there's no records of baseball prior to that. So. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so... Uh, um, yeah, I was uh, actually, I 
I uh, am a co-host for the uh, ghost tours in Cooperstown, and I was waiting around to see if anyone was uh, going to show up for a ghost tour that evening. And uh, I saw Jim walk past me with a square encompasses on his, uh, on his sweater or uh, his uh, vest, and uh, no one wound up coming. So I wanted to see him come back, so I ran over, tapped him on the shoulder, started chatting with him, uh, found out he was a, a past grandmaster, was there on a trip. So that was unexpected, a uh, little a surprise. Uh, we don't get too many grandmasters visiting us in our little town of uh, less than 2,000 year-round residents. Uh, so uh, that was a nice surprise. I don't think I've ever seen a New York grandmaster there, let alone one from another state. Um, one of the perks of living in a, in a tourist town, for sure. And uh, we started chatting and just happened to be right outside our, our, our lodge as well, right outside the temple in Cooperstown, which is right on Main Street. Uh, as you're going down Main Street in Cooperstown, you'll see a big flagpole right at the intersection of Main and Pioneer Streets, and uh, you can't miss it. And uh, yeah, so our, our lodge is right there. We own one of the buildings on the corner, one of the four corners, and uh, we chatted for a bit. And then uh, our current uh, district deputy just happened to be walking down the street with his wife, so he joined in the conversation. And uh, from there, really, the, the, the friendship took off. And uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so Jim and I uh, share quite a few passions, including baseball, obviously masonry, and also theater. So. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a good time. So um, first of all, David, you'll be happy to know that the best I was wearing was a Sons of Hiram vest. So you'll be happy to know that I was wearing that vest. Excellent little plug for that, yeah. <laughs> those, those dang district deputies just show up everywhere, right? Exactly. <laughs> but uh, Nathan, a little bit about your lodge. You said you're a member of Otsego Lodge in Cooperstown. But the numbering of your lodge is a little, is a little <laughs> unique. Uh, if memory serves, it's 128, but it's actually supposed to be a smaller number. Yeah, so it's 138. Almost had it. Um, okay. Yeah, so 138, which seems pretty high for a lodge founded in the 1700s, um, because it is pretty high for a lodge founded in the 1700s. Uh, so we have we have an interesting history. So uh, we originally founded as Otsego Lodge number 40. Uh, we also had a Mark Master, uh, uh, Mark Master Lodge. Yeah, we had a Mark Master Lodge also there uh, before our chapter was founded. So, uh, really early uh, American uh, masonry really kind of etched itself out there. Uh, kind of put yourself in the idea of what I'm talking about, the time period when our lodge was founded. Um, those of you familiar with the the film or the book Last of the Mohicans uh, was written by James Fenimore Cooper, whose father was William Cooper, that founded Cooperstown. So. Uh, while not all of that film takes place in Cooperstown per se, uh, the Leatherstocking Tales take place right in that area. So we're really talking the frontier of the United States when our lodge was uh, founded, which is pretty cool. Um, but anyway, yeah, so uh, we were Otsego Lodge number 40. Uh, and then I'm not sure exactly why. I have to dive more into the Grand Lodge uh, archives to find out what, why exactly it was changed from 40 to 41. You notice that's not our current number, uh, but it was changed to Otsego Lodge number 41 at some point uh, in the 1800s. And then fast forward into the anti-Masonic period. Um, so being in New York where the Morgan affair took place, the anti-Masonic movement was pretty strong here. And uh, we still met during the anti-Masonic years and um, our lodge kind of went dark. We met once a year to elect officers and take care of the basics that we had to. Uh, and actually, it's really cool. One of the buildings on Pioneer Street, which you can actually see from our current uh, our current Masonic temple, uh, has some Masonic uh, symbols kind of built into the stonework facade. Uh, there's a man in a top hat. There's a trowel. Uh, and if you look at the year that's built into it, it's right in the uh, right in the beginning of the anti-Masonic period. So it's a really cool building that uh, we can connect to. Um, 
But uh, yeah, so we continued to meet, but the first year that we went to the one meeting a year format, uh, we paid our dues to the Grand Lodge of New York, as we should. And then uh, this is where you might get a different story if you look at uh, the records from Grand Lodge at the time, but our lodge claims they never received any more dues notices from Grand Lodge. So they never paid because they never received any dues notices. Uh, fast forward about uh, 25 years and um, the members of the lodge received notification from uh, someone who was not a member of the craft that the, uh, the junior grand warden was in town looking for their charter, uh, trying to pull it. So the lodge scrambled together, received the, uh, uh, the junior grand warden, and uh, with how New York state law was at the time, fraternal organizations couldn't legally own property uh, unless they had a local connection. So uh, being that New York State would take possession of all lodge holdings, including the Masonic Hall at that point, uh, the junior grand warden was uh, allowed them to operate under uh, dispensation, I suppose is the best way to call it. Uh, but really, they just didn't pull the charter, despite the Grand Master telling them to, uh, until a new charter was issued. And that new charter, which was issued, wasn't for number 41, but rather for number 138. So we've been continuously chartered since we were originally chartered, but we've functioned under three separate names and two separate charters. So uh, it gets a little interesting. I don't know of any other lodge that's had a history quite like that one, um, but that's the long story of how we got from Otsego Lodge number 40 to 138. <laughs> now you bring up an interesting term, leather stocking, because I, I was out there, as you know, uh, for the Grand Lodge and, um, I guess you guys are you guys are the leather stocking district. And, you know, over here, our districts are by number. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, you heard that Matt's deputy of district number two, Dave is deputy of district number 13. And you guys, you got names. So what's that all about? Yeah. So uh, not all of our districts have uh, really unique names. Some of them are like uh, there's the first and second Manhattan districts. Uh, you know, Manhattan's has so many Masons, they get two districts uh, <laughs> or multiple, I should say. Whereas uh, the Leatherstock, Central Leatherstocking District is the full name of our district. Uh, it's a newly formed district. We merged the Otsego Schoharie District with the Delaware District. And those were named by the counties that they comprise. So we're three separate counties. Uh, by comparison, Delaware County is larger than the state of Rhode Island. So just that's a fairly large uh, district. Then it merged with uh, Schoharie and Otsego uh, Counties District to form the central leather stocking. And uh, yeah, so our district, if you drive from tip to tip, can take about three, three and a half hours, depending on the route you take. Um, so it's a pretty large geographic area. Um, but most of the lodges are, are fairly close. To get from any one lodge to another probably wouldn't take you more than an hour 20 at the most. Um, so for us, it's not too bad, but I can see how uh, other, other districts might see how that's uh, different. But the problem is, uh, since we are named districts, sometimes it's kind of hard to come up with a name uh, to include those districts, that's all encompassing. So central leather stocking really covers us pretty well, uh, as the northern part of our district is kind of at the southern tip of the Adirondacks. The southern part of our district is in the northern edge of the Catskills, and the western part of our district is in the southern tier, uh, kind of near uh, Syracuse and then Binghamton, the I-81 corridor. So, uh, and completely different geographies. So, uh, yeah, it's hard to find something that kind of unites us all together. So. Uh, this is the leather stocking region, uh, based on the leather stocking tales from James Fenimore Cooper, which comes from uh, stocking meaning sock and leather socks. So that's what the early pioneers would wear to protect their legs from uh, brambles and other things like that. Uh, so that's where we get our name from. We're in central New York, so central leather stocking district. Wow. So, you know, the people who are going to be who are, who are, who are trying to track all that live, when you go on YouTube to watch that, 
again, track where, where Nathan kind of laid out the district. And so you can, you can kind of map that out. And we're going to talk about maps in New York in a little, a little bit here. Cause you know, you talk about the history of your lodge and how it has, um, I don't want to use, I'm trying to find the right word, but you know, people, different people understand different things. Baseball is kind of similar in that regard. We don't really know how baseball started or who started it. Uh, you know, when I was in Cooperstown, I saw I, I saw Double Day Field. I took pictures of Double Day Field, but ah, that's you know, I'll let you take it over from here. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> yeah, so let's start with the Double Day myth. Uh, so those who aren't baseball fans, uh, according to the Double Day myth, and the keyword there is myth. Uh, we are all pretty familiar with that term in masonry. Uh, so uh, the the myth that baseball was invented in Cooperstown. Uh, actually has Masonic uh, connections, which is pretty interesting. Uh, but according to this, this myth or this legend, if you will, uh, depending on who you talk to, um, Abner Doubleday, the Civil War hero for the Union, uh, gained fame at the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, did live in Cooperstown. And according to the Doubleday myth, uh, Abner Doubleday, along with uh, well, 18 or sorry, 17 other guys, invented the game of baseball in Cooperstown in 1839. Uh, obviously, that's not the case, as uh, as uh, Jim pointed out. But um, that that story that's completely untrue, and there's plenty of evidence supporting the fact that it's not true, um, says that uh, that well, that myth is why the Hall of Fame is here in Cooperstown, really the middle of nowhere. You can't just stumble upon it by accident. You have to want to come to Cooperstown. Um, it's uh, it's a decent trek to the nearest airport, so you have to want to come here. Um, and yeah, so with that, um, the story goes that uh, on a day in the summer of 1839, I forget the exact date that Abner Doubleday invented it at Finney's Field. Now, Finney being the um, the name of the first worshipful master of Otsego Lodge. His name was Elihu Finney. He was a printer in Cooperstown, and it was his son's field. And his grandson, according to the story, was the catcher at the game. Uh, so. There's a Masonic connection right there from the beginning. Uh, many people want to claim Abner Doubleday as a Freemason. Uh, there's no evidence that I've come across anywhere supporting that he is. However, some of his family members, there are several Doubledays that were members of Otsego Lodge. He was never one of them. It's worth noting he really didn't live here all that long. Um, he lived here. He wasn't born here. Uh, he joined the, um, the army. He went to West Point at the U.S. Military Academy. And uh, actually the day that he allegedly invented baseball in Cooperstown is actually a day he was checked in as a cadet at West Point. And while you could be in both places today uh, in the same day, there's no way uh, in 1839 <laughs> that he was going from Cooperstown to West Point. Um, there's just no way. Um, so yeah, so from the very beginnings, that's the story. But um, the truth actually is that baseball evolved. To say any one person or any one place is the birthplace or birth person of baseball just is simply untrue. Uh, with basketball, we know, you know, uh, Naismith invented it. Dr. Naismith invented it. Uh, Springfield has the Naismith uh, Museum and Basketball Hall of Fame because, well, that's where he did it, right? Springfield College. Uh, with Cooperstown and baseball, we really don't, other than that story that I just told you, we really don't know where it came from. Uh, the best guesses that some historians have come up with is that um, games, stick and ball games, which have been around since the times of the ancient Egyptians, kind of merged together and formed into uh, two different games, uh, one known as town ball in New England, and New York being not a New England state, even though we border them, uh, a mid-Atlantic state, and mid-Atlantic states, they played by a set of rules called the Knickerbocker rules. And the real big difference between those two was that uh, town ball or the New England game tended to be played on a square shape, uh, and they'd 
throw the ball to a batter um, kind of in the middle of that square, and then they'd run to a corner, run to a second corner, a third corner, and then back to um, the fourth corner to uh, score a run, which is really similar to the game of rounders, if anyone's ever played that. Uh, it's a game I wasn't familiar with at all until uh, I spent some time in Scotland with the scouts, and uh, they ended every game by playing a game of rounders. It's like, hey, I get, I get this game. It's, it makes sense. It's baseball. Um, but uh, the, the Knickerbocker rules are much more what you'd recognize as baseball. Um, so nine players on a diamond, including a shortstop. And uh, if you ever hear people talk about the game at the Elysian Fields in Hoboken, New Jersey, a lot of people consider that to be the first baseball game. Well, that's not necessarily true, but it's the first game played by the Knickerbocker rules, uh, which are, as far as we know, the first set of rules of that form of baseball. Uh, and then what we tend to teach here at the Hall of Fame with school groups that come to visit on their field trips is that those two games during the Civil War, for those who aren't from the U.S., it's 1861 to 1865. Uh, those two forms of baseball merged in the camps of the war, and then when the war ended in 1865, we kind of get a new version of the game coming out back into uh, the United States. And it's not a big surprise then that just uh, four years later, after that, we get our first professional baseball teams. So 1869, the Cincinnati Red Stockings really get a lot of credit as being the first professional baseball team. There's actually quite a lot of evidence there were other teams playing that same year as well. But they're the undefeated team. Uh, they're the ones that most everyone knows. And that's why if you look at any MLB uniforms issue, you'll see a nice little patch on the sleeve that says MLB 150. because It's been 150 years since uh, the first professional team. Uh, but really, that's what we here at the Hall of Fame say. It's uh, the, the Civil War brings those two games together. And what comes out of it is more or less modern baseball. Trust me, there's still plenty different from 1869 to 2019. Now, along those same lines, just bring up the Knickerbocker rules. Uh, wasn't it Albert Spalding who was the main proponent of those? And now, now we do know that he's a Mason. Mm -hmm. uh, so go ahead from there. Yeah, so Spalding, um, Spalding actually played on that 1869, uh, well, on the Cincinnati Red Stockings team. Uh, and uh, he really was like the LeBron James of his time. He was the biggest name in baseball and retired at the height of his career to form Spalding Sporting Goods, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, and what's, I know it's not exactly what you asked me here, but I'll, I'll get to that eventually. But uh, um, he formed a commission to find the American origins of baseball. And that commission is the one that declared, and of course, great historical research was done, that uh, the... Um, that baseball was invented in Cooperstown in 1839. So uh, another connection back there with Brother Spalding. But uh, yeah, so um, yeah, Spalding um, definitely would have known the Knickerbocker rules, uh, definitely played by that new set of rules that was coming out after the Civil War and uh, really was one of the first huge stars of the game. Uh, and he was a huge reason why baseball spread. Uh, he used his celebrity to spread the game as well as his uh, sporting goods company to promote the game. Uh, so it's pretty cool. Um, and uh, um, as far as people who get credited as being founders of the game, um, oh man, I'm totally blanking on a name here. Um, it'll come to me when I don't want it. Uh, but anyway, one of the uh, guys that is most credited with being uh, the one responsible for founding the Hall of Fame um, was... Uh, Oh, sorry, Alexander Cartwright. There we go. That's the name. Um, so Alexander, it, was Car it, was Car it was Cartwright that I wanted to say, not Spalding. It was oh, Cartwright. Mason. Yeah, that's yeah, what Cartwright. Yeah, he's also on that same team. So not yeah, right, right team. Uh, so so Cartwright, uh, if you actually if you look at his Hall of Fame plaque, it says uh, father of modern baseball. 
Now, since that plaque was made, uh, there's been some some additional historical research done, and that may not necessarily be as uh, as uh, true as uh, we may want it to be. But uh, he's really the guy that gets credited with the biggest role in developing those Knickerbocker rules, including the shortstop position and some other huge parts of what you'd recognize as baseball. And uh, uh, so there's this big conspiracy uh, that people love to go to that, see, it really, those Masons, they, they're they involved from baseball right from the start. Here's our proof. This guy, uh, there's, you know, especially for those of you who are Royal Arch Masons, you know the importance of the number three, right? And the multiples of three. And baseball's got three everywhere, right? Three strikes, three outs, nine innings, uh, 27 batters per side in a nine inning, or 27 outs per side in a nine inning game. So the multiples of three just keep showing up everywhere in the game. So Conspiracy theorists tend to have a field day with that, uh, especially the fact that we play on a diamond of 90 feet uh, between each bag. Uh, yeah, we can go on all day if we want. But uh, um, so, yeah, in, in all honesty, that's not a bad way to take it until you realize the facts that Cartwright didn't become a Mason until long after he spread baseball. So basically, uh, he played some baseball early on. And then he got caught up in the gold rush and he wanted to go out to California to go make some money. And as he traveled west, he spread baseball. Uh, and then uh, he decided from there he wanted to continue on. I forget where his destination was supposed to be. Uh, he was going somewhere else in search of, of uh, prospecting and wound up getting sick on the boat. And they wound up tossing him, uh, not tossing him overboard, but when they stopped for port in Hawaii, they told him he can't get back on. Sorry, you got to stay here. He wound up recovering from his illness and uh, spread baseball there and was actually made a Mason in Hawaii. So uh, all this took place before he was made a Mason. So sorry, guys, uh, no great connection there for us either. And, and so, and I believe Cartwright was the sixth master of, Hon of what is now known as Honolulu Lodge. Uh, it was Honolulu Lodge number 21 under the Grand Lodge, California. And then when they, and then when Hawaii divested themselves, now it's just straight Honolulu Lodge. So here's where we do know where Masons really come into play though. And that's the fact that Cooperstown, specifically the Hall of Fame, is was founded by Mason. It was, yeah. Stephen C. Clark, uh, the grandfather of current chairman of the board, um, Jane Forbes Clark. Um, but yeah, so Stephen C. Clark, we know for a fact, was a Mason. He was a member of my lodge at Seagull Lodge, um, was a master of uh, a lodge in New York City. I forget which lodge he was master of down there. Uh, but yeah, there's no doubt he was a Mason, as well as... Um, he had a lot of help in uh, developing the Hall of Fame from a guy by the name of Ford C. Frick. And uh, uh, I'm checking my notes real quick. And uh, oh, sorry, I'm wrong. It was Frankie Frisch. That's a Mason, not Ford C. Frick. Sorry, close enough names to get confused there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Stephen C. Clark was the founder of the Hall of Fame. Uh, and uh, yeah, he, he was definitely a Mason. I, I have uh, I've seen him sign into our, our lodge book quite a few times over the years. Um, obviously, he passed away long before I was even born, let alone a Mason, but uh, he's definitely in our lodge archives. So yeah, there's no doubt there's a connection right from the beginning. And uh, I don't know if you want me to continue on with that connection. or uh, Please do, yeah. Yeah, so um, so he, that's pretty much the end of, of, of his story, really. Stephen C. Clark, as far as the connection to masonry, he was a Mason. He founded the Hall of Fame, but he definitely wasn't the last. Actually, the very first class of, of, of uh, the Hall of Fame were five. It was uh, Walter Johnson, Babe Ruth. Um, I'm going to mess myself up here. Uh, <laughs> Ty Cobb, uh, Hannes Wagner, and somebody else. 
Christy Matheson, Christy right? Matheson, thank you. Yeah. And three of them were, were Masons upon uh, being elected. So 60% right off the bat uh, are Masons. So not a bad percentage if you're going uh, for, uh, you know, some of the greatest baseball players of all time. Uh, so yeah, not bad. And then Just a quick aside. Uh, when I was there visiting, um, uh, Eric, Eric Stroll, who actually happens to also be uh, a member of Otsego Lodge, past master, I believe. Uh, he he put a ball in my hand that was uh, it was a fundraiser back in the day for when Christy Matthewson had uh, tuberculosis, and you know you mentioned the Adirondacks earlier, and I guess the the cure for the cure, if you will, for tuberculosis back in the day was we're going to send you to the Adirondacks. Uh, but I found it funny that you know he gives me this ball, right, signed by I believe at the time twenty one guys, many of them who became Hall of Famers. He point he pointed out two things for me: uh, one that Babe Ruth uh, always signed in the sweet spot. And just below Babe Ruth's signature, just outside the sweet spot, happened to be the hits leader of the of, of that year, George Sisler. And then he said, "Oh, and for some bizarre reason, Calvin Coolidge's name is signed on here as well." <laughs> but no, so the Christy Matthews thing was it that just, that just jumped out of me. They say that ball sold for eight hundred dollars back in nineteen twenty one, and it's worth like millions <laughs> nowadays. So yeah, that's a pretty cool. uh, pretty hefty amount even back then. So. Yeah. So anyway, so anyways, so we got we got three we, we so we have three of the five original Hall of Famers uh, <laughs> as Masons, but when you send me list something like twenty percent currently or somewhere in that neighborhood of the of of the of the of the men in of the men enshrined in the Hall of Fame are Masons. Yeah, so um, that number's dropped a little bit because we have some big classes, but yeah, right around there. Uh, so quick side here as to how I got to this research. So I was raised in 2016 uh, in Otsego Lodge, and I was working here at the Hall of Fame before that. And part of my job is to help school groups when they come on their field trips. And we do have the largest repository of baseball um, artifacts, including documents. Uh, we have over 3 million documents in our library. So uh, part of it is to go through our subject folders to help schools find out what they want to research. Uh, and so going through, I saw a list that, and on that list, it said Freemasons. I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. So I went, I pulled the folder and I came across this document here. I made a copy and highlighted it myself. Uh, I guarantee if you look at enough um, publications at the time, be it the MSA or through uh, Royal Arch Mason Magazine or uh, whatever the, I know they changed the name since then, but uh, I'm a Northern Jurisdiction guy myself. So whatever the Northern Jurisdiction magazine was at the time or Southern Jurisdiction, I bet you'll find this guy's lists here somewhere. His name, his name was uh, Jerry Erickson. He was a brother out of California. And his hobby was to find every single person related to baseball that was a Mason. That doesn't mean baseball players. That means TV or radio announcer, a writer, an umpire, anyone who had a connection to Major League Baseball that was a Mason, he wanted to compile a list. Uh, the list I have here says final list, 561. I know for a fact this is not the final list because uh, um, after finding this list and it piqued my interest, I started doing some more research into it and found out that the Grand Lodge of New York uh, in its uh, Livingston Library, which has a small museum, had a small exhibit on Masons and baseball. So I reached out to uh, the library and the uh, the librarian there who had done the research for that. And sure enough, the Grand Lodge in New York's library has a larger number. I believe it's 600 and something. I don't quite remember the number and I haven't been able to get a hold of that copy again since uh, I did that initial research. Um, I didn't find, I found one other Mason from that list and I made sure to write it on my list so I had it. But uh, um, yeah, so 
from that, I came across another item of the Hall of Fame's collection, this book, uh, which I've tried finding, and it's definitely out of print. I don't even think the publisher's still around, called uh, Brothers of the Diamond, Freemasonry and Professional Baseball by Christopher L. Murphy. And uh, in here, uh, Brother Murphy comes up with a decent list of Hall of Famers. It's about 30 uh, that are all Brother Masons. And so combining these along with uh, some additional research of my own through newspapers and periodicals and that kind of stuff, I came up with a list of 59 confirmed members of the Hall of Fame that are Freemasons. At the time, it was like 19.7% or something like that. Uh, and we've had some pretty large classes the last couple of years. So now that number, I believe, is just under 19%. Uh, so uh, right now there are 323 members of the Hall of Fame. Uh, this summer will change to 329. So we have a pretty big class coming in this year as well. And that induction ceremony is going to be in just three weeks. So uh, it'll be pretty exciting. None of them are Masons that I know of, but uh, there's no reason we can't change that. Uh, <laughs> but you know, here, but here in Washington, we're excited about the fact that Edgar, that our own Edgar Martinez, is going oh, yeah. in this year. And uh, over here on the other side, on the East Coast, they're really excited about Mariano Rivera, the Yankee closer. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be – it's definitely going to be an interesting year at the induction ceremony this year. Yeah, you were telling us in the green room, green room earlier that, that this might be – this might be uh... – a, a pretty big stretch for for, for 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 your little hamlet there to, to try to accommodate all those people. Yeah, the village of Cooperstown has about 1,800 year-round residents. Um, our record for the largest induction was in 2007, uh, and that was uh, two huge names in baseball. Cal Ripken Jr. and Tony Gwynn were inducted, and that drew approximately 80,000 people. Uh, so from 1,800 to 80,000 is a pretty big jump. And uh, we're definitely expecting it to be close, if not past that this year, because uh, Yankee fans are going to be excited, not just for Mariano Rivera, but also uh, Mike Messina is a former Yankee as, uh, um, as well as, uh, oh, geez, one of the guys that came in through the committee. I can't remember if it was Baines or if it was Smith. I think Lee Smith played for the Yankees for a short time. Uh, and then obviously Edgar Martinez and uh, Seattle fans have been calling for him to be in the Hall of Fame since I think the day he retired. Uh, so last year of eligibility and he finally got in and uh, Seattle fans came out in droves for Griffey. So uh, we're hoping to see a lot of Seattle fans come out again this year for, for uh, the guy whose uh, name is on the street that the Mariners play on, right? Isn't it, uh, do you know what they named it? It's uh, Edgar Martinez Drive. Uh, Edgar Martinez Drive, there we go. And um, uh, it's actually on the corner, of the, it's actually on the corner of Edgar Martinez Drive and Dave Niehaus Way. Dave Niehaus, of course, was the, he's also in the Hall of Fame, as you know, as, uh, in the broadcast wing. Uh, he was he was the, he was the original broadcaster, original voice of the Mariners. So you know, whenever you hear, whenever you whenever you hear the first the first first opening of a game, welcome to the corner of Edgar and Dave. That's what that's how it starts. And right right on the, so it's it's really kind of cool. And of course, there's a Griffey statue there, so it's it, it it's 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 really kind of neat. So now, just kind of a quick aside, you know, baseball isn't the only sport that that has had Masons, obviously. I understand you're working on, and this is kind of a kind of an of interest to us here in in Washington, because Matt, I know you're you're kind of interested in this as well. Uh, hockey. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's actually a book I came across. Uh, oh man, I wish I could think of it. I think it's Brothers on the Brothers on the Ice. I think is the name of it. Um, kind of a theme, if you know, it's Brothers on the Diamond, Brothers on the. Ice. But uh, um, if you do a quick Google search for uh, Freemasons hockey book, you'll come across it. It was. Uh, Unfortunately, I can't think of the title or the author's name right now, um, who researched hockey hall of famers that were Masons. Uh, and so 
as a uh, baseball is my number one love, my favorite sport, but uh, hockey is not that far behind. So uh, I've taken his research. I've started doing my own. I'm yet to come across any other hockey hall of famers that are Masons, but uh, I'm working to improve it. Not nearly as high of a percentage in hockey as it is baseball. Um, uh, I want to say it's around 15 uh, that he came up with. Uh, but yeah, uh, compared to the 59 we know of in baseball. so uh, And I think they have more Hall of Famers in hockey, too, than we do in baseball. So uh, not nearly as good of a percentage. But yeah, it's definitely something that I I think I've exhausted the baseball thing. There's one player that I, I need more information on um, for baseball. Lefty Grove showed up in an all-Masonic All-Star game played in Trenton, New Jersey in 19, I want to say 1939. Wow. Um, and uh, I came across a photo of it on a Lodge's website, and it was this tiny little thumbnail. And it had a name of all the players in there, and Lefty Grove's one of them. And everyone in there is a mason, and a whole bunch of them wearing their shrine fezes. Uh, it was put on by uh, a tall Cedars of Lebanon um, forest. So a bunch of them are wearing their tall Cedars of Lebanon forest hats. And uh, Lefty Grove is not wearing anything Masonic in the photo, but it's an all-Masonic all-star game. So you'd think he'd be a Mason to be in there. And uh, luckily this past year, uh, I came across a Facebook post from the uh, Scottish Rite Northern Masonic Jurisdictions Facebook page that had the same photo in it. So I was really excited uh, that I actually had a chance to find out where this photo was and get a good look at it. And um, I went to Masonicon in Attleboro, Massachusetts, which uh, gonna do a shameless plug for them right now. Best, Masonic event, best Masonic event I've ever been to. Next year is going to be the last one. Uh, so Masonicon in Attleboro, Massachusetts next uh, April. Make sure you go. Um, and on the way there, I stopped in Lexington, which is the headquarters for the Northern Masonic Jurisdiction, Lexington, Mass. And uh, got to take a look at the photo. And sure enough, Grove is not wearing anything Masonic other than that photo. And the fact he played in this All-Star game, there's no proof that he was ever a Mason. So uh, he is my little hiccup that I have to figure out why he was in that game if he's not a Mason, or if he is a Mason, where was he? Um, and it's, it's hard, as you can imagine, doing research into whether or not a guy was a Mason's tough, because especially with baseball players, you know, they travel from team to team, so they could live in five or six different states just based on who they played for, plus their home team, and then anywhere they, or where they grew up, and then anywhere they lived later on in life. Some of these guys, you could be reaching out to nine or ten different states, let alone, you know, if it's a Prince Hall affiliate, or if it's a, a, a four-letter or three-letter Grand Lodge, it can take a lot of time just to figure out if one guy was amazing so uh so yeah that's the one thing left in baseball that i really need to look into but yeah hockey is definitely next on the on the agenda for me well hopefully we'll have more than one in the in the, in the future so while we're on the subject of shameless plugs um <laughs> uh, you know I, we, we look we look at your profile picture and you know you're wearing a jersey i have that jersey and for, i don't know I, i've suddenly become your, your 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 northwest sales representative on those things <laughs> but um yeah, why not? Let's do a quick shameless plug on on uh, on, uh, on this little thing you have called uh, Two Pillars Apparel. Yeah, so um, when I presented, I presented at the Hall of Fame Symposium about my findings on masonry. Um, and uh, when I did, I wanted a shirt that kind of reflected that. So I actually made a shirt that looks kind of like this. You can see my square and compasses mixed in with the uh, baseball imagery there. So you got two crossed bats along with uh, the first and third to home. So I came up with this jersey with, or the shirt in the old Raglan style and on the back has all the hall of famers listed. And from there, there was quite a bit of interest in that. So uh, I made some shirts with that. And then uh, I was like at a baseball game. I was like, you know, I really wish I had a baseball Jersey uh, that kind of says I'm a Mason. So I made a shirt that says Freemasons. And uh, 
Uh, as you said, uh, it's been quite popular, and uh, that's especially in the Pacific Northwest. I wonder why that is. When I came back to, to, to share my memories of Cooperstown with my lodge, I, I actually wore that in lodge, and of course somebody from lodge ordered it, and then uh, we had a district meeting where they said, um, uh, wear, your, wear the jersey of your favorite team. Well, you know, I love my Mariners, but it's tough to love them sometimes. It really <laughs> is. As a Mariner, I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, but you're at least won a World Series. Have at least won a World Series. Yeah, yeah. we've uh, we ha we've won two less. <laughs> I mean, we're we're still hanging on to 1995. You know, you know. I, the only thing, the only thing parallels you guys held on to 1969 forever. Uh, but, uh, we, yeah, we, we still hold on to 1995 and to a lesser degree, 2001. Uh, but, uh, so, you know, it's, it, you know, so because it's so tough to love our home team, you know, you always love, you always love the fact you're, you're, you're a brother in the lodge. So popping on that Freemasons jersey, it was, it was, what was a fun and easy thing to do. And I'm glad that people, uh, people like it and people are ordering it, people are ordering it from you and that you're, and that you're shipping it. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah, and uh, it continuously expands too. So I'm a member of the Valley of Schenectady in the Northern Masonic jurisdiction for the uh, Scottish Rite. And uh, I've got my uh, modified pirate's cap here to uh, uh, reflect that. And uh, so I'm wearing this to our, uh, we're going to a baseball game. We have uh, the Houston Astros single A short season affiliate is uh, the Tri-City Tri Valley Cats. And uh, one of the three cities in the Tri-Cities is Schenectady. Uh, so the Valley of uh, uh, the Valley of Schenectady or Sigma Bodies, uh, we will be heading to their game, and I'll make sure we have an order of those caps. And we've got some Scottish Rite jerseys that uh, we're going to order, and it's going to be it's going to be great. Uh, I can't wait to roll into the stadium wearing some baseball gear with the guys. It's going to be fun. Uh, but that's really where this whole thing came out of. I wanted stuff that I would want to wear with uh, not just the square encompasses thrown on it, but something that was kind of designed around sporting goods and sporting apparel that uh, spoke to me as a Mason too. So that's where it came from. And that's really what the designs are. Uh, every, all the new stuff, all stuff that I want to wear. So. so I don't know how David's doing questions, but somebody texted me one. So I figured I'd, I'll go ahead and ask it. Um, guy asked is, uh, is the, apparently he's never been to Cooperstown. So I'm just, so this is good. He asked me, wonders, is there any is there any tangible memorials or structures of of, 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 of Abner Doubleday, even though it's obvious he didn't invent the game in, in Cooperstown? So uh, the current answer is no. Uh, however, uh, there used to be a state historic marker. So in New York, we have these big our state colors are blue and gold. So it's this big blue and gold uh, metal. Um, uh, sign that uh, said birthplace of baseball and you know had a little bit of information about Abner Doubleday that since been removed uh, for obvious reasons um, but other than that I really haven't come across anything uh, with Doubleday because once it was pretty well known that that was bad history Cooperstown really tried to distance ourselves from that story um, we do have the Doubleday ball in our on display at the Hall of Fame, which is the ball that uh, Abner Graves, the guy who claimed that he was at that game that allegedly occurred in 1839 that we know did not, um, that's on display. And we have it on display to kind of teach people that that story is not true. So yeah, we've tried to distance ourselves from the Doubleday myth as much as possible. Now, Doubleday Field is still obviously named Doubleday Field. The term Doubleday gets used quite often, um, but uh, no, there's no real monument or anything to Doubleday, but that's a great question. 
and looked at it, and somebody just sent me, and I don't know how to do it on this phone, just sent me a, a, a picture of Alexander Cartwright's grave grave marker, which this looks really cool. <laughs> it's got, you know, it's got, it looks like it's got two baseball bats, uh, kind of in the shape of a compasses, and, Ooh. you know, all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, so I'll have to find, if I could figure out how to show it up here, I would, but I can't, I don't know how to do it, but it's, <laughs> if you're able but, to send that to me, Jim, I can, uh, I might be able to display that. If I'm able to see, if I'm able to send it to you, I mean, I, you know, I'm on the phone right now, so I don't, so I'm afraid I'll disconnect, <laughs> but what I might do is I might, I might send it, I might include it in, in the, um, uh, in the comments, you know, because, you know, we have, do, are the comments live on the, on the, on the podcast for, um, uh, for when, when people view it later? There are, there's live chat and then there's also comments we can add and we can certainly add it to the Facebook page in that stream as well. So there's lots of places we can post it. Cool. All right. Yeah. 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 yeah I, apparently the, the, there are people who are, who, who don't know how to chat. So they're, they're, so they're sending me text. I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, David. I don't know what's happening there. That's all right. That's great. That's great. <laughs> From all angles. So I'm, I'm curious about the infrastructure. How in the world does a little sleepy town of 1800 handle 80,000 people or a hundred thousand people? I mean, I get Sturgis, you know, they, they, they built infrastructure, but I imagine Cooperstown doesn't do that. And there's, I looked on the map. I, I really didn't have an idea where you were and, and you're nowhere. You're not near anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's always fun. I mean, I grew up generally in this area and uh, it's always fun for people when they're like, wow, you really are in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, yeah, as a kid, I had to drive 30 miles to buy it like an album when it came out. Like, yeah, it's not, you can't just like go to the corner store. Uh, but yeah, so the simple answer is we don't. Uh, <laughs> uh, everyone knows induction weekend or Hall of Fame weekend is its own unique beast. You need to approach it its own way. Uh, so a lot of the locals just get out of town. Actually, a lot of them rent their homes out. Uh, can make some good money doing that too. Um, but a lot of them just get out of town uh, unless they have to be there. Uh, and it's a great, great time if you're a baseball fan to be in Cooperstown. Um, and with that, uh, we have large parking lots that have trolleys running. Um, and I know there are some plans in the works for the next two years, next year, or for 2019 and 2020. Uh, 2020 being the year we expect Derek Jeter to get elected in. And even if you're not a baseball fan, you probably know that name, Derek Jeter. Um, again, it's his first year on the ballot, so can't say he's going to get elected, but I think everyone would be shocked if he was not. Uh, and so because of the increased number of crowds we're expecting for the next two years, there's uh, talk of changing, um, having further out parking lots and shuttling people in, that kind of stuff. But uh, really, it's people know that you need to pay attention ahead of time, find out the proper places to park, shuttle yourself to the induction site or to the museum. Uh, we have trolleys that run throughout the village, and then there are shuttles that run up to the induction site, which is about a mile from the museum. Uh, the induction used to be held at the museum itself, but uh, we can't fit that many people uh, in uh, the little area around Main Street. Uh, so we moved out to the Clark Sports Center, uh, which is named after Stephen C. Clark, uh, worshipful brother Stephen C. Clark, uh, the founder of the Hall of Fame. So. Yeah, you know, let's see. When I was out there, I stayed at the Holiday Inn, which is you know just outside of of, uh, of Cooperstown, and it's it, and they tell me it's it, it, there's like two peak times that happen there. One obviously is you know that is is induction weekend, but also apparently they have this kind of they have this tournament that's done on some fields outside, and it's not unusual for games to be running at two three o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, it's a 12U baseball tournament. At, uh, there's two of them in the area. The one that's right next to the, the, well, not right next, but pretty close to the Holiday Inn where you stayed is the, um, uh, the 
Cooperstown Dreams Park. Uh, and they have over 100 teams each week come in. Uh, and again, it's 12 and under uh, from really around the world, mainly United States teams, a few Canadian teams, and occasionally we'll get a couple of teams from Australia or elsewhere. And um, yeah, they, they come in and it's, it's busy. It's a 13 week camp and it starts usually the first week in June and runs straight through for the next 13 weeks. And uh, it's intense. Uh, but yeah, it's it's hard to find a hard to find a place to stay sometimes uh, if you're looking to come into town, especially if it's when those two overlap. You know, I, I was fortunate. I think I came. I think I, I I think we came in early May, so just before, just be literally before everything. Uh, but uh, no, so that was that was uh, that was a lot of fun. I, you know, I got to share my uh, my personal experience being at the hall. Uh, you know, obviously meeting you was fantastic, and I'm so glad that we've continued. Uh, but also um, Eric Stroll. Uh, giving me a tour of the archives downstairs. Uh, I got a kick out of the fact that he put, uh, he, 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 he opened up this, this locker and said, here's a couple of things that most people probably wouldn't appreciate, but I think you might. And he put uh, uh, Ty Cobbs and then Roger Hornsby's shrine Fez in my hands. And, uh, and of course he says, to go to see you have now in your hands, the greatest the representative of the left, greatest left-handed hitter of all time and the greatest right-handed hitter of all time. And I'm going, okay. This is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, I wrote an article for the Hall of Fame on those two Shrine Fezes. Actually, we have two Shrine Fezes for Ty Cobb uh, and one for Rogers Hornsby. Uh, obviously, as you said, the greatest hitter on the right and left side of the plates, respective, or well, respectively, but yeah, <laughs> uh, for each of them. And um, uh, also, Hornsby, we have his, uh, oh, is it the Syots? Uh, we have his, uh, his hat from them as well. Uh, and actually, I don't know what their organizational structure is as far as their their meeting unit is, but I know his still exists. And I reached out to them to let them know, hey, <laughs> I thought you might like to know that uh, one of the greatest baseball players of all time was a member and uh, has your name on it, and uh, we have it in our collection. So, how do they respond to that? Uh, actually, I haven't heard back from them, so I don't know. Maybe they went defunct, or maybe it's just a you know how it is sometimes with those yeah. websites. Maybe it's an old bad email or something. Yeah. So here's the great. There's an orange. There's at least one orange baseball in the Hall of Fame. There is, and, and uh, that's got a Masonic connection. It does, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, orange baseballs were used for one preseason, uh, one spring training, in um, in the 1970s. I think it was 73. Um, then almost a month since I've looked at that most recently. You think I'd have better memory. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was uh, tried out for a short time. Uh, Players didn't like it. They said the red stitching with the orange ball was hard to read the stitches. And for baseball, that's really important to be able to tell uh, the spin on the ball. So you can tell if it's a breaking ball or if it's a fastball uh, and kind of get an idea of what's coming. And they didn't like that. The pitchers didn't like it. They said the texture of the leather was different, uh, so they didn't really like it. It kind of got scrapped. But the guy who came up with that idea uh, was controversial, but I'm a huge fan, um, owner of the Kansas City and then Oakland Athletics, uh, Charlie Finley who uh, not only was he a Mason, but uh, I know he was also a 32nd degree Mason as well as a Shriner. So active in the Scottish Rite, the Shrine, and Blue Lodge. So um, yeah, so that's a fun little Masonic connection. And I actually uh, did a presentation to the public here uh, on June 3rd um, with those two items, actually. It was the orange baseball and with uh, um, Charlie, Finley's, um, Charlie, uh, Charlie Finley's baseball and uh, um, Ty Cobb's fence. Yeah, I could just imagine Ty Cobb while we're seeing that orange baseball coming. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you believe half the stories, he wasn't a pleasant man to begin with, and then, then not, not, not to throw an orange baseball at him. 
<laughs> yeah, so well, so that's a fun story too. So uh, Ty Cobb's uh, granddaughter actually is coming to the Hall of Fame quite regularly to do research uh, because she's working to help clear his name. Uh, he's kind of known. He part of uh, the presentation of the public was that Ty Cobb, who again he's in that first five elected into the Hall of Fame and one of those three Masons. Uh, he uh, had a book come out shortly after his death and just lambasted him. Uh, accused him of murdering a guy before a baseball game and uh, beating up a disabled fan and all sorts of stuff. Um, most of those stories have been completely discredited since, but it really did a, a huge number on his character. Most people today still think of him as just a horrible person. In fact, he was included in a book, uh, I believe it was titled American uh, Horrors or American Monsters. There we go, American Monsters. Uh, and other people listed in that book were Ted Bundy and um, uh, Charles Manson. So the oh, fact that he's included in a book with them, yeah. <laughs> now, on a, on a Seattle note, uh, you were telling me that one of our own here is a, is a rather frequent visitor uh, to the hall, uh, Ichiro. Yeah, so uh, always been a big fan of Ichiro, but when I found out that he comes fairly regularly to the Hall of Fame, and by that I mean every few years, uh, but the fact that he actually comes and studies the history of the game, he got a whole new level of respect for me. Uh, it's one thing to be a great ball player and honor the history, but to actually go and do your own research and try to learn as much as you can about the history of the game just put him on a whole new level for me. Yeah, he just came this past year, I believe. So, uh, yeah, before we wrap things up, uh, Hall of Fame weekend coming up. Uh, what's it like for a guy when he shows up at the Hall? Because it's not just show up and give your speech and leave. There's there's some obligations that that, that, that individual has. Do, do, do they not? Yeah. So uh, I want to take a step back from that and say how you even get elected into the Hall of Fame. So um, to get elected into the Hall of Fame, you have to play 10 years at the Major League level, then be retired for five at that point. You're eligible to go on the uh, the ballot, which is voted on by the Baseball Writers Association of America. They only get 10 votes. So if they think 11 guys deserve in, they got to make a choice. Someone's not getting their vote. Uh, from there, 75% of the, uh, the writers must vote then. In, uh, if they don't get 75%, they don't get in. If they get less than 5%, they fall off the ballot. So you've got to play that game of, you know, does this guy have enough votes to stay on the ballot? If not, he falls off. And if they have over 75, they get elected. Uh, from there, uh, that election announcement's made in mid to late January. It kind of varies from year to year, uh, usually later January. And then somewhere between January and now, so between then and, and hopefully before May, uh, they'll come and take a tour of the Hall of Fame, kind of get an understanding of what's going to happen in Duction Weekend, know what the institution's all about, uh, staff get to actually meet them at that point, which is great. Um, we don't get to do too much fanning, and it's one of the few times you can actually say, hey, you know, it was great to, to watch you play that kind of stuff, because um, the rest of the time, any other time we see them, it's straight professionalism, so uh, no fun anecdotes for them at those points. Uh, and then we don't really see them again, as far as the standard employee goes, uh, until uh, election or until induction weekend. At that point, uh, they usually arrive, you know, somewhere earlier in the week. Some of them could arrive on Friday, some on Wednesday. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's all, there's a lot. Uh, they have to write their speeches, do run throughs, uh, do tours with their families to say, hey, here's my stuff. Uh, or hey, here's some guys that I met and here's their stuff, you know, all that kind of uh, stuff that happens over a course of a career. Um, and uh, there's a golf tournament that we have and uh, all sorts of programming that they're involved in. And it's a very, very busy time, especially for the guys that, that are getting inducted. Now, the returning Hall of Famers have a little bit more 
freedom in their schedules. But and that's why you'll see a lot of them signing autographs on Main Street uh, over the course of the weekend. But yeah, that year's inductees, you're not going to see them anywhere really during the, the weekend because they're usually just minute to the minute schedule doing something. Um, my favorite and event of that weekend is actually on Friday morning. Um, Ozzy Smith is our educational ambassador, uh, the great shortstop for, we played, started with San Diego, but really known as a, as a Cardinal. Uh, he comes and grabs a few other of his Hall of Fame friends, and uh, they do a program up at Doubleday Field, or not Doubleday Field, sorry, up at the Clark Sports Center, where uh, you get to hear some stories and then turn two with Ozzy. So Ozzy will field the ball, toss it to you at second, then he throw it over to another Hall of Famer at first. So it's a pretty cool, pretty cool event. That is, a, and um, at least from a from a spectator standpoint, Mrs. Forbes kind of runs that show, does she not? Yeah, so uh, so uh, Jane Forbes Clark, she's the chairman of the board, and uh, like I said, granddaughter of Stephen C. Clark, and yeah, she uh, she gets uh, she gets things done. She's a great uh, representative of the Hall of Fame, and uh, she's done this so many times. She knows what she's doing. She knows. <laughs> um, and yeah, she's she's great. Yeah. And uh, and one more thing, the Hall is independent of Major League Baseball. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. So other halls of fames aren't necessarily independent from the sport that they work with. While we definitely have a very close working relationship with Major League Baseball, it's a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, the Major League Baseball knows when fans know the history, they're better fans. And we know that good baseball fans want to come learn that history. So it's a nice relationship we have going on there. Uh, but we are completely independent. We are a nonprofit and uh, um, we don't pay for any of our artifacts. Everything we get is donated. And we also don't sell anything. We agree to take care of anything donated to us into perpetuity, uh, which is legally defined as we're going to do our best to get it to 200 years. Uh, wow. Yeah, we, we refuse to sell anything. Well, uh, that makes sense because you because then you create an artificial market. So, hi, David. I was going to say, being in a 501c3, is there some kind of a donation or charity program that's available? Or how, how, does, how does the funding work? And, and maybe you can get into that. Yeah, so uh, that's not on my end of the museum, but I can give you the basics. Uh, so uh, we have our membership program, which is honestly how we get most of our uh, our connections with folks. So um, you become a member, you get our, our periodics, periodicals sent to you. I believe it's once every quarter, plus our annual membership materials. So you get a nice little lapel pin, car sticker, uh, and a yearbook uh, at our basic level. And then each level gets more stuff added on. Uh, but also, if you're looking to make a large donation, uh, our, um, we have several individuals here whose uh, that's their main focus, their main job. Uh, but yeah, if anyone is interested in that, if you go to our website, baseballhall.org, uh, there's a button right at the top. I believe it's a red button still just says donate. And uh, that includes both artifacts and monetary donations. So yeah, that's uh, if you're looking to do any of that, that's the way to go about it. Excellent. Well, we can certainly get a link that that link up there, and and uh, we'll we'll also uh, get your link for your apparel company into our uh, notes as well. Jim, do you have any wrap up comments there or wrap up questions? Well, you know, I, I could go, you know I, I could go all day with I could go all day with this because I'm I, I'm I'm a longtime fan of the game. I played the game. I umpired the game. Uh, I actually showed up at the little league ball field the other day to say hi to some of my old compadres. Uh, but you know. I want to be respectful of everyone's time, but yeah, trust me, you know, you get to, Nathan will back me up with this. You get two guys talking about baseball. We can go all, we can, we can go a long time, <laughs> but Hey, Nathan, I want to say thank you uh, for, um, for checking in with us. Uh, you know, I, I, I hope that you become a, a regular viewer of the podcast and who knows, you know, we might bring you back. 
I hope for your fans that doesn't become a, a normal for me to come back. <laughs> well, Nathan, aren't you? Are you? Are what? Are you senior warden in your lodge now? Is that right? Yeah. So I'm a member of two lodges, Otsego Lodge, which we talked about. I am the uh, current senior master of ceremonies and lodge historian there. Uh, I'm also the area six historian. So that uh, for the Grand Lodge in New York. So that covers basically the uh, uh, the district in which I belong. And then I'm also the senior or junior de sorry junior warden. Sorry, we just uh, changed over officers a couple of weeks ago. So I'm not used to saying junior warden yet. I'm used to senior deacon. Yeah. Uh, so I'm the junior warden of Delaware River Lodge, number 439 in Delhi, New York. Uh, and uh, that is, as far as I know, uh, the most recently dedicated Masonic temple in the state of New York. Uh, so uh, three lodges merged and uh, two sold their buildings. We're all going to meet in Delhi and the Delhi Lodge caught on fire. Uh, so uh, we built a new building, right? Horrible time too. You know, it's right as the merger is going through. Uh, but uh, it's all come together. It's a beautiful building and we're really happy to finally have a home. So yeah. Awesome. Well, maybe we can have you back on for some uh, Masonic history as well in, in New York and, and your areas as well. Absolutely. That'd be cool. Well, uh, Matt, any final comments there that you might want to throw in? I I I, I feel I feel bad because we, we've I've been loving listening to this, but I, I'm a self-proclaimed not uh, super sports fan. I uh, I know it's good for business, but uh, you know, watch watch try to watch Sports Center, and I get into a conversation with somebody, and then they're often literally left field, pun intended, and I have no <laughs> idea what I'm talking about. So I I find that it's just easier just to say I just don't know anything about sports. <laughs> I understand the game, but I don't know anything about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just great to, to sit back and watch two guys who know what they're talking about talk about it. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Nathan, for being on the podcast. Uh, I actually have family over in Red Hook, so it's not too terribly far. From where no, not at all. Uh, and uh, spent some time in Saratoga uh, when I was in the Navy. But no, it's a uh, uh, thank you very much for being here. And and it was like I said, it was just great to listen to you guys talk about something you're so knowledgeable and passionate about. Absolutely. And everybody, if you could, uh, please remember to uh, like the video on YouTube and also on our Facebook page. We do have a Discord server if you're into that, if you're more on the gaming side and want to have a chat or video there as well. Uh, so please, uh, please follow us on and subscribe on YouTube and uh, hit the notification button if you want to be notified of our upcoming uh, shows. Uh, something else uh, kind of exciting to let you all know, we are moving even though this is called a podcast, it's been primarily on live video or recorded video, and we're moving into true podcast land. Uh, we found a podcast service, and we are now certainly on Spotify. Uh, the, the service we're using is Anchor, so if you go to anchor.fm, you can find us there and subscribe. Uh, but it's also, uh, it pop propagates to Spotify, and then uh, we're working with Google and Apple. They're uh, a little more picky about their rules and uh, some approval timing. And so hopefully in the next uh, week or two here, we'll be actually on Google Play and also on Apple to, uh, iTunes uh, podcast. So look for us there. Just search for the Working Tools podcast and you can find us. Uh, we'll put some links into Facebook. And uh, so again, thanks so much, Nathan, for being with us. And Jim, thank you so much for uh, being a co-host. Oh. You may have just popped off there. Uh, but thank you so much for being a, a co-host with us today. Uh, we really appreciate it and look forward to having you both back. And also, again, uh, th uh, thoughts and prayers to uh, Connor as he's dealing with his family issues. Again, thanks for joining the Work of Tools podcast. Have a great afternoon.